0: All right, Uh, let's turn to Matthew 5 still. We did the Beatitudes last time. And of course, this is not on the handout, except tucked away under Matthew 3.15. I have C, C also, the Sermon on the Mount. But I'd like to move now to beyond the Sermon on the Mount. And we're not going to read this. We're going to kind of walk, pick our way through it and walk through it. We're talking here about salvation, and and we started with Matthew 121, uh, with the purpose of Jesus coming to this world was to save his people from their sins. And suddenly we're hearing all about this other stuff, it seems like. Uh, Jesus, in, in the Beatitudes, he doesn't directly talk about salvation, though he indirectly does. We looked at the beatitudes last week as progressive steps one takes in the Christian life. So the first step is to feel our need. Second step is to is to uh, <clears throat> repent. Blessed are those who mourn. Next step is to uh, get them out here. I don't have them in order in my mind. To have the humility, the meekness, and to Hunger and thirst for righteousness. So all these are steps. Steps to what? What is Jesus outlining here in Matthew 5? And we can say 5 to 7 because that's this whole sermon on the mount. Heaven? The steps to heaven? Maybe? Or Or to him? So maybe he is talking about salvation? Um, there's something else going on in the text, in the structure of Matthew, that I think is important to understand. And that is that Matthew is concerned about the new covenant. And the old covenant, the, the Sinai covenant, had all the features of an ancient Near Eastern treaty. It had the preamble uh, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It had the stipulations: you shall have no other gods before me; you shall not make a graven image, and so on. And it also had the blessings and the curses if you didn't keep the covenant. And that's all part of an ancient Near Eastern treaty. We have actual copies of ancient Near Eastern treaties, and they most of them have all of those parts except. That, as I recall, Neo-Assyrian treaties did not have blessings. They had only curses. Matthew is structuring his gospel around that concept, that that frame. And, And he starts out with the blessings. Only instead of Jesus using the word blessed, which is Baruch in Hebrew, he apparently used the word used in the Psalms for blessed Ashrei. Ashri means happy. So some of your versions uh, may have the word happy. What You have a Chinese Bible there. Um, what is it in Chinese? It's uh, English Chinese. It's English Chinese. Yeah, has both. Yeah, but I'm curious what it is in Chinese. Uh, which uh, t- Just t- try verse uh, 3 and the first word. 5-3. Five, 5-3. Three. Five, three. Fortune and happiness. Fortune and happiness, yeah. So they, they translate it the way uh, my version does happy. So J- Jesus deliberately uses that word and what and we last week we talked about what the difference is between happy and blessed. And and the difference is between baruch and Ashrei. Baruch has conveys the idea that someone external to me is going to bless me because I'm doing what's right. In at with Ashrei, it's Inherent in what I do, it's 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 going to come out of what I do. Doing that is going to make me happy, Uh, and that so that's the term Jesus uses. He's using talking about intrinsic cause and effect relationships rather than external cause and effect relationships. So, and and then Matthew, on the other end of the gospel, has the woes on the Pharisees. The woes on the Pharisees are like the happiness as opposed to the blessed, the woes instead of curse. It's not external now. It's intrinsic. It's going to come out of what you did. So that's going on in the text. And so basically the Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom. Now what does the kingdom have to do with salvation? Is it possible that the nature of Jesus' kingdom is about salvation from sin, just getting us out of that quagmire, you might say, of sin. And that uh, his kingdom is a, a kingdom of the heart rather than a kingdom of anything external. So if, if we keep that in mind, we, we don't lose sight of where the purpose of Jesus' mission at all. And so Jesus goes on to say, "You are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world." In I'm, I'm now in verse uh, verses thirteen to sixteen, and uh, to let your light shine, you can't you can't have a relationship with Jesus and not let it shine in some way. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to say. If you really, if you've done all the things, uh, the beatitude, if you have all those qualities of the Beatitudes. You're going to shine. Uh, It's just inherent in what you're doing. And then Jesus comes to the law. And he goes through the law. And I'm going to just summarize what I think is the essence of this because I don't want to spend an inordinate amount of time. We could could spend the rest of the quarter on the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) But I, I I want to just look at it as a whole. Jesus' emphasis in the law is not to do away with it, but to show its internal nature. That it's not enough to externally refrain from keeping the law. A corpse can do that. I mean, (laughs) refrain from breaking the law. A corpse doesn't commit adultery. It doesn't steal. It doesn't kill. It doesn't worship any false gods. The truth is, it doesn't worship. (laughs) So it's not enough to just refrain from doing certain things. It's important that... We understand the nature of the law. And and uh, yes, there's a lot about refraining, but Jesus goes deeper into the law and says that murder is hate. Murder is being angry with someone. Adultery is uh, looking at a woman or a man, I think it applies both ways, with the desire to possess, which... I think Jesus highlights something very important, that I have no right to another person past their d- agreement that it's right. And I have no right to another person if they have are, are already taken by someone else. Jesus is setting the boundaries, and it's not enough to just refrain from the sexual act with another person. It's, it's just not all right to even go there, to even think that. And uh, Jesus is hard on divorce. He believes that marriage was for keeps. And again, this is all embedded in the concept that tr- love and trust cannot be had unless we believe that way. Unless, unless our preference is clearly to uh, have loyalty and faithfulness, uh, integrity, and so on. He goes through law of solemn sol- obligation and swearing. And says basically be just simple and say yes or no. Anything else in this comes from evil. And then he comes to the law of retaliation. And now he strikes out against that law. And so we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus attacking a law in the Old Testament? I mean, there are three laws that enjoin an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I won't take the time to have you look those up. Is he attacking Old Testament law? Uh, some would say yes. You know, it, it's just directly confronting it. I say no for this reason. Uh, each of those laws, if you look at them, the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, is only for that particular law. And it is to set guidelines for it. It is not as to, as an overarching principle in the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament does not know a law of retaliation as an overarching principle. And so for that reason, I'd like to point out that the law of retaliation began in Babylonia uh, with the laws of Hammurabi. Hammurabi was the first to use what we call lex talionis, the law of retaliation, to enjoin some of his, his laws that he set forth. Up to Hammurabi's time, most penalties set by kings were what we call pecuniary, meaning money, monetary. you paid a fine. You raped someone's daughter, you paid a fine. If she was a free a daughter of a free man, you paid a hefty fine. if she was a daughter of a, a different kind of man, one who probably worked for the government, you paid a less lesser fine, and if she was the daughter of a slave, you paid a very minimal fine. So most laws were along those lines. But in Hammurabi, you begin to see the shift of retaliation, and it's short-lived, because by the Neo-Babylonian period, laws were now back to pecuniary, or monetary. So, when Jesus says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, he's taking an ancient Near Eastern principle that I feel is especially exemplified in Babylonian law and Hammurabi, and he's undermining it. And he says the only eye for an eye is the eye for an eye instead of the eye for an eye. And for those who couldn't see me do that, uh, I pointed the first time to first my right eye and then my left eye, and then I pointed to my eye for the second one and to someone else's eye. Uh, Jesus says basically take your own eye, give your own eye up rather than to take someone else's eye. So he says you must not oppose those who want to hurt you. If people slap you on the right cheek, you must turn the left cheek to them as well when they wish to haul you into court and take your shirt let them have your coat too when they force you to go 1 mile go with them too now as as some like to point out doing this was not just being passive doormat okay take me out uh it was actually putting the person uh in a bit of a shameful position uh because uh if he did, if he was crass enough to go that far society would condemn him as, as a shameful person. Then Jesus goes to, it was said, you must you have heard that it was said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who harass you so that you'll be acting as children of your Father who is in heaven. He makes sun rise on both the evil and the good and sends rain on the both the righteous and unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, as your Heavenly Father is complete in showing love to everyone, so you must also be complete. This is one of the most lofty aspirations in the entire Bible. And it strikes me that Jesus is basically contending that if you only love those who love you, you aren't keeping the law. You have to love your enemies, or you just aren't keeping the law. And that raises the question, what are we being saved from in terms of Matthew 5? Everything that has to do with Matthew five is embedded in my psyche, isn't it? it? I mean, even the beatitudes have to do with the way I think and the way I see things. So, at the bottom line, it seems like Jesus is saying salvation is is uh, salvation from myself. I'm getting saved from myself, from from thinking thoughts that are harmful and destructive to myself and to others. Somebody else. I'm sorry. What? Thinking that we're better than somebody. Else. <laughs> exactly. Definitely, the beatitudes undercuts that possibility of thinking we're better than ourselves and anybody else. We, there is no room for that in the kingdom of Christ. Is it possible also that salvation is from selfishness, lovelessness? Because if if you love other people, say, say you are tempted. To lust, just just use that as an example. Just to lust at someone. If you really think of that person as a person and you respect them and you love them, you're not going to do that. So it, it's not enough to just try to stop all these actions. I think this is why Jesus ends up on the on the um, level of love that he does. <laughs> He's trying to say it's not enough to just refrain to try to stop lusting, to try to stop hating my brother, to try to try to stop swearing falsely, uh, to try to stop, stop, stop. We can't do it that way. The kingdom of God is not through that means. There has to be a replacement of my selfishness with love. There has to be a replacement of my lust with love and respect. There has to be a replacement of, of all the sinful natures that I have with Active principle of love in my life, and the question is, where do we get that? Well, I'm probably going to harp on this increasingly in the sabbaths to come, but for me, First uh, John 19, i I'm sorry, 4:19, tells me where it is, and it's a very simple line. You don't even need to turn to it, you It's we love because He first loved us. And I maintain that the heart of the law is about a God of love who is himself the source of all love. That all love comes from God, and even the love of one person to another is mediated by the love of God. God works through that love of that person to love the other person that they're loving. And consequently, what separates us from God, what makes God unique is the only is the only person in the universe who doesn't have to be loved in order to love he is the source of love and so no one has to love god in order for god to love we have to be loved in order to love and this is where the theory of evolution for me breaks down if everything was caused by evolution we should have the ability to survive birth without having to be loved it should be in our, in our, in our natures, in our DNA. But the truth is that num- numbers of tests have shown that those who, the infants who are not loved, and they can be diapered, they can be fed, they can be bathed, they can have all the things done to them that they need for their basic needs. But if they are not loved, they die. So, so for me, this is the vital principle of life. And it is the bedrock of salvation that we are capable of loving on our own. We, we just don't have it in us. And I would like to, to extend that to the angels and say the angels don't have it in them either of themselves. The whole universe is dependent on being loved. So it's, it's a universal, uh, principle life. That we have to be loved in order to love. This is to the extent, to the extent that we are loved only can we love. So to me the the whole Beatitudes, the the sermon in Matthew 5, uh, just really points me to that principle, that life-giving principle. And so in one way we can say that Jesus came in order to save us from our sins, He came to love us to the Father. To, so that we would know that the Father loved us and we'd be drawn back into the source of love so that we could love other people. And, and I've, I've told my own conversion story so many times uh, in this venue that I'm not going to do it again, but just to remind you that this is how it worked for me. I was a very unloving person when uh, I met God for who he really is. And, and it, the transformation was just almost overnight that I became a more loving person. So, let's go to chapter 6. Matthew. We're in Matthew 6. Matthew 6 is about prayer, fasting, storing up treasures in heaven, seeing and serving, worrying about necessities. You could call this chapter the economic chapter. It has to do with economy economy of our relationship with god and basically what it, what it's saying is everything is everything is about what's inside of you not what's outside so what you do externally to impress other people is worthless and and when you pray you want to pray in secret and god who hears the prayer in secret will reward you openly and when you pray don't pour out a flood of empty words The Gentiles uh, tended to pray repetitiously over and over again saying the same set phrases. No, you don't need to do that because your father knows what you need before you ask. So pray like this. Uh, Not pray this prayer but pray like this. And what that prayer is, very simple. It's full of imperatives. Ever thought about that? The Lord's Prayer is full of imperatives. We have the we have the right gift by Jesus to command God. And that sounds very disrespectful to a superior. But this is not to say that we're, we're insisting on our own way and, and we're demanding God to, to do what we want and, and come to our terms. That's not it at all. We're commanding him as a little child. Daddy, give me Uh, This toy, Daddy, give me a drink, Daddy. I, I want such and such. That's the kind of prayer Jesus is inviting us to pray. And uh, this putting on a sad face doesn't belong to the kingdom either. Make sure that the outer is reflective of the inner. It's called authenticity. And then about this. the rest of the chapter is really about life's necessities and, and how we serve and and all of that. And I think the picture Jesus is painting is is there's only really one thing that's important on this earth, and that's the kingdom of God. If you make that first and foremost in your life, everything else comes. And you don't need to worry. The Scottish version of the third, twenty-third Psalm, ends with the words, "No long, no more a stranger, or a guest, but like a child at home." And uh, it it seems to me that that's what Jesus is depicting here: that we're ch- like children of our heavenly Father, and we can just relax and be at home because we're in our Father's house and we're we're doing the things of our Father. And that's all we need to worry about. Matthew 7. I'm just running through this and and it will take a little bit of time to discuss. Jesus comes back to law. It's interesting. Don't judge. Ask what you want. Because those who don't ask, don't get. Just Ask. I'd like to talk about this narrow gate for a little bit. I, I'm going to digress. But something surfaced this week that that gave rise to this. Go through the narrow gate. I'm in chapter 7, verse 13. Go through the narrow gate. The gate that leads to destruction is broad and the wi- and the road wide. So many people enter through it. But the gate that leads to life is narrow and the road is difficult. So few people find it. I've always had this picture in my mind when I read this. Of of uh, going through a forest and you have this very wide trail that's well kept and, and you know easy to walk on and then you're you're always hunting through the brush for this obscure little trail that you can barely see that's that's always the picture I, I've had of the narrow road. There there was an article published this week on uh, on Ty Gibson's blog actually it's uh, Light Bearers Ministries blog by Ty Gibson where he talks about liberals and conservatives. And he suggests that these are two reactionary extremes. And that the real place we should be is in the moderate middle. I'm, I'm convinced that the moderate middle is not just a moderate. It's, it's like a third option. And somebody in the comments said something that I have long thought, have, have actually come to conclude Based on Jesus' word, the narrow road is the middle between the two extremes. And the reason it's hard to find is because the two extremes are very vociferous, very vocal, very strident, and very in your face. And they're constantly hating each other. And so you hear all this above, overhead, and on either side, and it's like you've got to make a choice. I mean, there's two sides, and we've got to choose two sides. It got to choose one of them. And that's why we miss the narrow way. In the middle. And then Jesus talks about the tree and its fruit. And he's basically saying, you reap what you sow, but uh, the kingdom of God is not arbitrarily contrived. So that it hell has external measures. But it is Intrinsic, internal, and cause effect. You reap what you sow. If you, if you grow a bad tree, you're going to have bad fruit. If you grow a good tree, you're going to have good fruit. If you found your, your house on the sand, it's going to collapse. If you found it on a rock, it's going to stand firm. And, and so Jesus is talking about the very nature of the kingdom, which means that salvation I'm going to liken it to something that I've struggled with in my own life. Have you ever had an illness and you couldn't find, figure out what was wrong? The doctors didn't know what was wrong. Nobody knew what was wrong. And it turned out, and, and, you, and you couldn't figure it out, and so you kept trying medicines, right, to, to try to figure it out. It turned out you're deficient in something, and you fix the deficiency, everything's fine. That's cause-effect. That's thinking cause-effect. Whereas, so thinking somebody has to, to superimpose an arbitrary contrived solution, and I'm not saying taking medicine is an arbitrary contrived solution, I'm on plenty of medications. <laughs> I'm not knocking that. <laughs> uh, I'm just saying that I was always missing the cause-effect. Reasoning from cause to effect. Checking what I'm doing in my diet. Checking what I'm doing or not doing in exercise. Checking what I'm doing or not doing in getting enough sleep. You know, those kinds of things. And then expecting, uh, somebody to make up for my lack uh, on the other end if I fall down. Uh, that's, that's the kind of thinking that I think we do in the Christian life in terms of salvation. We think of a Christian life or salvation as like getting a package under the tree and we open it up and somebody gave us salvation. Yay! And that's not how salvation works. It's not a gift under the tree. It's a gift of love that transforms our lives and rescues us from sin. So those those are my thoughts. Now let's discuss what are your thoughts about these passages in terms of salvation? not a gift under a tree, a gift of love. <laughs> the problem is love doesn't come under a tree. You can't okay. open it up and go, oh, I have a hug now. Uh-huh. I have love. Okay. I guess I have had a hard time understanding that word picture. Yeah. Well, I think... Be honest. This is this now shows my the depths of my childhood. I I conclude I I ran into the fact and it hit me hard like a a, hitting a brick wall. As a child, I was about five or six when I discovered that some things in this world were not cause and effect, and we're not. They were not. According to natural law, although I didn't have the concept of natural law, but I had the concept of something being real, something being out of its, coming out of itself naturally, not being superimposed. And how I learned that was playing hide and seek with a bunch of friends. They shouted, not it. Everybody, I, I said, let's play hide and seek. And everybody shouted, not it, not it, not it. And they pointed at me and said, you're it. And I said, no, I'm not it. And they said, yes, you are. And so they all ran off to hide and I had to be it. And I was just totally baffled. How in the world could I be it just because they said so? <laughs> Somebody has to start. And, and so I, uh, I struggled with that and, and I the only thing I can think of is I said, all said not it, not that must be I nod my head and then I'm not it. And so the next time this is this is I know this is really crazy, but but I'll explain my reasoning in a minute. You thought uh, they said nod it? Yeah, nod uh-huh. it. And so the next time we went to play hide and seek, I nodded my head, vigorously and I was still it. <laughs> <laughs> and finally I complained. I think I complained at this dinner table or something, and my brother said, Well, stupid. You just say not it, and whoever says not it laughs is it. And I remember being quite horrified that making a claim could make it so. Just saying not it. I said, No, this this can't be, this, this has to be on something that you have done. That you deserve not to be it, or something that has happened uh that makes you not it. Uh, it can't be just because you say not it. And um, so the it's next so bad time, this week. Yeah. So the next time we went to play, I shouted, "Hide! Uh, Let's play hide and seek. Not it!" And I wasn't it. It's but so as it. I ran off to hide, I prayed, "Dear Jesus, please forgive me for lying." <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was whole, my whole construct was so embedded in natural cause and effect and nothing being arbitrary, nothing being superimposed, nothing being contrived, nothing being artificial, that it was a real, it was a real stunning uh, wake up to realize that the most of the world operated on a different principle than I thought it did. And so, this is this is why, for me, the good news about the kingdom being something that is not artificial, not contrived, not mechanically made, is, is such refreshing good news. But I don't think I quite responded to your comment, Jonathan. So would you revisit that? Um... I guess the gift of love is supposed to uh, cause you to Mm -hmm. act in a godly way. It does. It transforms. And you you weren't here, I think, when I... I I was just finishing when you came Mm -hmm. expounding on... Uh, the principle in 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Mm-hmm. And explaining that we have to be loved. We are creatures of response. We have to be loved in order to love. And we can only love to the extent that we are loved. Okay. And that without love, infants die. That, that we have to be loved in order to love. In order to even live. So that love is a life principle. It's embed it's embedded in who God is, it's embedded in in who we are to be, and we can't exist without it. So that's why I, I can't reduce love to a package <laughs> under the tree, it just doesn't work for me. To me, love is a, a the personification of love is God. And mm-hmm. so love is best understood as a person and who he is, who that person is. And when we come in contact with His love, there's a dynamic response that is our most natural responses. If we if we respond to the love of God, we're we're doing what has come most naturally to, to humanity. If we don't, uh, we have to work twice as hard to resist the love of God. So you're saying, with First John, you can only respond in proportion to what you've experienced. You can like only love lies? love to the extent that you've been loved. Okay. So if you're deficient in love, mm-hmm. you have deficit of love, it's going to show in how you re- relate and treat other people. Mm-hmm. That probably applies also to families. Mm-hmm. You see that certain families where parents don't love as much, the kids have more trouble. Yeah, they do. And they have trouble loving other people. That's that's what I mean by God's love is mediated through our love for one another in in families uh, is best where God's love is is mediated. Any other comments or questions about this passage? I like the idea that chapter 5, the Beatitudes, really are targeting actual sin, the problem of sin, that these are the steps in salvation. That's what makes most sense to me. It's kind of like getting stuck in a well. It's sort of like uh, the story. Uh, it's an old, old story. That a donkey, a very old donkey, got trapped in a well. And I don't know, anybody see this on Facebook? I've never heard of this before. You've heard it before? Yeah, I think so. Um, and the farmer thought, well, you know, the donkey's old. He's lived his life. Let's just bury him. He he couldn't pull him out. He couldn't get the donkey out. And so he decided, let's just bury him alive. The well is dry. Uh, We'll just fill up the well. And so he got all his neighbors together, and they started shoveling. And they'd shovel a pile of dirt, and the donkey would just keep walking up on top of the dirt. (laughs) (laughs) And you can guess what happened. the donkey walked out of the well. Well, you can look at the beatitudes in the same way is we 're stuck as it were in a well of satan 's lies about God of of uh, unloving un- un- loveless kinds of responses to life because of our deficit of love, and God keeps shoveling in okay here's here 's the first <laughs> shovelful step up to that and 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 eventually we step out of the well i don 't know that that 's the only way to see that Beatitudes, you know, there may be other ways, but that's wor- what has worked best for me to see them and, and they are linked together if you look at them that way. Like steps to recover from mm-hmm. being in a Yeah. And and dark again, places. you know, my favorite metaphor for sin is abuse because I feel that it's all encompassing. Sin is abuse. And we are caught up in the cycle of abuse. So that we're not talking about just the problem of actions that we call sin. Uh, we're talking about a whole dynamic of relationships that we have with other people and how if that if we are abused, we tend to become the next abuser and you know, we tend to become victims and then become the next abuser. And so it becomes a cycle of abuse. And and I see sin as as a cycle of attitudes and dysfunction and and a a poor dynamic of relationships that uh, salvation is to redeem us from. And of course, our most significantly poor relationship is with God. Uh, We don't, by nature, we don't trust Him. Which is, is horrendous when you think about the fact He's the one that gives us life. And we don't trust Him. So... Salvation is repairing all that, and the Beatitudes illustrate the step-by-step process God does work to get the relationship. And it's interesting that he starts with what is keeping us from his love, and that's our need. Uh, because without, without our need, we cannot love. Or recognize that, Trina. or, re- or yeah, And we can't receive love. If we don't need, if we don't have a need, if we don't realize our need, we can't mm-hmm. receive love. Uh, we're just not going to go there. We're going to push it away. Okay. Well, we'll get back on track next week. All right. Well, let's have a closing prayer. Father, we thank you that you are itself love and that you have done everything in your power, to convince us that you love us. Ask that we will respond to that love and let it heal and restore us so that we can love others and love you supremely. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. amen.